Easter is uh, approaching next week, the most important holiday in the Christian faith. We're celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So uh, we'll be having services next week, 9, 15, 11. But uh, before Easter comes and the resurrection, we want to also think about and meditate upon uh, Good Friday and the crucifixion of Jesus. So we'll be having a Good Friday service here at 7 o'clock. You're welcome to come. We don't have child care, but that's right. Just bring your kids anyway, and if you feel more comfortable sitting next to the door, do that. But please, uh, please come and worship with us. I know we also have some families that are doing Easter uh, outreach uh, opportunities kind of in their neighborhood, that kind of thing. If you'd like to have some ideas about how to do that, we have information on the website. Give you some tips on maybe how to do a, a little neighborhood Easter egg hunt and do some stuff like that, kind of point people toward Jesus. You may not have time to do that this week, but there are other families you could serve. You can bring up those plastic eggs. We still need a bunch more of those and wrapped candy. If you just want to drop those off uh, before Wednesday, we'll get that taken care of. All right. This morning, we are starting a new series. I need you to turn with me to John chapter 17. We're going to be talking about, for the next seven weeks, the fatherhood of God, which uh, really kind of presents its own particular challenges because... For many people, when they think about God as father, the idea of father doesn't elicit really wonderful and warm connotations for them. According to the 2010 census that was taken, recent census, about 24 million children lived in homes in which their biological dad was not present. That represented a third of all of the children in the United States of America at that point in time. And a lot more kids lived in a household with their dad present but dad being emotionally detached or being verbally abusive or physically abusive. When you think about father, it's not a great thing for a lot of people. A more recent survey uncovered that uh, was only about a third of Americans look to their father as a role model. In other words, the vast majority of people don't think of their father as someone who is worthy of imitation. So for so many of us, when we think about dad, we don't think wonderful things. Well, why is that a, a problem? It's a problem theologically because God has revealed himself as father. But if you think of father in negative terms, how is it that you can turn the corner and think of God differently? If you can't think of God as he actually is and as a good father, how can you worship him? If you, you don't really feel drawn to that image of God, how can you worship him as he is? And if you can't worship him as, as he is, how can you be transformed into that image that is in fact unappealing to you? A.W. Tozier once wrote this. He said, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. For this reason, the most telling fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. It wouldn't be a problem for us contemplating the fatherhood of God if father was just one among many names of God and we could say, you know, let me not think about God as father. I'll just think of him in other terms. But Father is one of the most important ways that God reveals himself. Let me illustrate. Uh, Right before I was born, uh, my grandfathers got together. Both grandfathers got together and they decided uh, that they knew what I should be named. And they came to my mom and they gave her two choices. They said, you can name your son, our grandson, Ivan Axel or Axel Ivan. We don't care which it is. Now, as you may have guessed, their names were Ivan and Axel, and they didn't care if Ivan was first or Axel was first. It could be either way, Axel Ivan or Ivan Axel. So my parents named me Brian Gregory. All right? 
Now, if I had been named Ivan or Axel, it wouldn't really have made much of a difference. I might have gotten teased a little bit more on the playground, but it really wouldn't have made a big difference because Ivan or Axel or Brian or Gregory really don't represent anything inherent about who I am as a person. But Father represents something very fundamental about who God is and how God relates to the other members of the Trinity and how God relates to us as his children. Now, the good news is this. If you had a father who wasn't such a great father, God, our heavenly father, is far better than the greatest father you can possibly imagine. He is powerful and strong, but he uses his strength for our good. He is true. He is consistent. You can always trust his word. He is good. He is kind. And most of all, he is loving. And so what we're asking God's spirit to do for us as we think about God as father is to transform the way that we think. So that we see God as he is, as a good and gracious and kind and loving Heavenly Father. So this morning we're just going to spend some time thinking about God. And we're going to begin by thinking about God as a trinity, the triune God. And I want to help you understand why it is so important to think about God as trinity. What the significance of it is, not just an explanation of the meaning of trinity, but why it is so important. And I think one of the ways we can do that is by comparing a Trinitarian concept of God to other religions. So, for example, in Hinduism, there are an estimated 300 million gods. 300 million. Can you imagine? Impossible to worship all of them at once, and so most Hindus pick out one or two or three that are the most important gods to them, and generally speaking, ignore the rest. 300 million gods who know of one another, but don't particularly care for one another. In fact, there's often a lot of chaos within the pantheon of Hindu gods and a lot of conflict. They are not unified in any sense. However, in Islam, there is unity within the Godhead because God is one. Allah is one, just one. And so there is unity. There is no conflict It says in the Quran, say, he is Allah, the one and only Allah, the eternal absolute. He begets not, nor is he begotten, and there is none like unto him. You see the direct attack against a Trinitarian concept of God. He begets not, nor is he begotten. And if someone says he has a son, let him be accursed. Allah is one. Allah is a unity. Allah is alone. The primary characteristic or the fundamental essence of Allah, the most important attribute, is power, strength, sovereignty. Demonstrated in creation, particularly. But what was Allah doing before creation? If he was alone and he was by himself, what was he doing? What was he thinking about? According to tradition, there are 99 names of Allah. One of those is Allah the loving. But we have to ask ourselves, if Allah was alone before creation, how could he know how to love? The only love that he could express or experience would be love for self, right? Because Allah is alone. In other words, he couldn't actually experience love for another until he created. He wouldn't know how to love or what love felt like to give until he created. Allah was lacking in something, that is the experience of love, that he didn't know or didn't understand until he actually created. He was not and could not by nature be 
a loving God. Love was something he had to learn. So why did he create in the first place? Was it because he was lonely or bored? (laughs) Wanted to experience something that he could conceive of that might be called love? When most religion... Religions, God or the gods, created in order to have inferior creatures that could serve them. There are a lot of creation accounts, and in creation, the God or gods create to have servants to bring things to them. And really, so it is in Islam. What does Islam mean? It means submission. It's the definition of Islam. A Muslim is one who submits. And so, worship of Allah is not love, worship is submission. Worship is bending the knee to the all-powerful. It is not intimacy. It is not love. It is submission. So we become like what we worship. What you fix your, your, your hope on, your affections on, your, your expectations on, what you genuinely love, that is what you worship. And what you worship, you will become like. And if Allah is essentially a God of power and strength, then his worshipers come to value power Strength. Is it any wonder that in vast sections of the Muslim world we see greatest value placed upon strength, power, even to the point sometimes of violence? We become like what we worship. So in Islam, there is unity in the Godhead, but there is not love. And in polytheism, in its very forms, there is not unity. There is some form of relationship, but it is conflict and it is chaos. It is only within a Trinitarian God that we see relationship and unity. Relationship and unity. So let's consider Christianity for a moment. How do we normally go about trying to demonstrate that our God is the right God? That our God is is true and our God is right and our God is the one? Well, a lot of times we'll, we'll look at creation as well. We'll say, look, here is creation. Something exists rather than nothing. And what exists is great. It's massive. It's amazing. It is a tremendous effect. And every effect must have an adequate cause to explain that effect. Therefore, God must be great and powerful and awesome. And we see intelligence. We see design demonstrated in this universe that he has created. So he must be smart and powerful. That is God. But before anything existed, what was our God doing? Was he lonely? Was he bored? Did he create because he needed someone to serve him? No, actually, Jesus tells me, tells us what God was doing. If you want to read with me in John chapter 17 and verse 24, Jesus is praying. He is speaking to the Father and he says this, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. For all of eternity, Father, Son, Spirit were loving one another. They weren't lonely. They weren't bored. They weren't incomplete. They didn't create in order to experience something they had never experienced before. They were loving one another. Only possible within a Trinitarian God. Which means this. God is three persons. Separate, distinct Unique, Father, Son, Spirit. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. They're not one God that shows up in three different modes, three persons. Father, Son, and Spirit. Read with me John chapter 17 and verse 11. Second part of the verse. Holy Father, 
Keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Holy Father, keep them in your name. What is the name? The name is God. What's the name that God shares with the Son? It is God. The Father is God, the Son is God. As Jesus would say in John eight fifty eight, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. I believe that the most important name of God is Father because it describes how he relates to the rest of the Trinity, describes how he relates to us. I think the second most important name of God is I am. I am that I am. I exist and I have always existed and I always will exist. And in all of my existence, I will never change and I will always be Father, Son, Spirit. God in three persons. God is also one God. It says in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, the great Shema, the nation of Israel, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Jesus would affirm this. He said there is one God. Paul affirmed it. There is one God, one in essence, one in nature, one in personality, one in purpose, one God, unified. One God, but three persons, delighting in one another, enjoying one another, loving one another for all of eternity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, inviting us into that relationship which has been enjoyed within the Trinity for all of eternity. So let's look at each member of the Trinity. First, God is a loving Father. Now, if you have read your Bible from cover to cover, you probably have discovered that there are lots of names of God, all right? As people walk through life, they experience God in a unique way. God breaks into his creation, into human history in particular ways, and people experience a particular attribute of God. So Abraham is about to sacrifice his son Isaac on the altar. He's about to bring the knife down, and as he brings it down, the angel of the Lord stops him, and God speaks to him, and he says, no, 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 Abraham, do not sacrifice your son. I know now that you love me, and Abraham lifts up his eyes, and he sees a ram, caught in the thicket, a substitute sacrifice for his son Isaac, and he says, God is the God who provides. That's the name of God, the providing God. Hagar is wandering through the wilderness, and she is out of food, and she is out of water. She has her son with her, and she knows that she's about to die, and she puts him a little way off, and she cries out. And God visits her, and God provides for her, and she says, God is the God who sees. God saw me in the wilderness, And he provided for me. God is the God who sees. God is the God who provides. God is God Almighty. God is the God who heals. Different points in time where God breaks into human history and people experience a particular component of the attribute of personality of God. But before all of that, for all of eternity, God was and God is Father. And he always related within the Godhead as Father. And what does a good Father do? A good Father loves. A good father always loves. No matter what a father is doing for his children, the father is doing it out of a motivation of love. And so what we see in the Bible is this declaration that God is love. 1 John chapter 4. John writes, God is love. The one who abides in love actually abides in God, and God abides in him because... God is love. Notice he doesn't say God is loving, as if sometimes God is loving and sometimes God's not loving, right? That's more description of me and my parenting, right? Sometimes I'm loving and sometimes I'm grumpy. Sometimes I'm loving, sometimes I'm crabby or angry. 
And loving is just one more adjective that sometimes applies to me more or less and sometimes does not apply to me. No, John says God is love. That is who God is. Why? Because he is a father. This is his nature. It's his fundamental nature. So what does it mean that God is love? Well, interestingly, John, the beloved disciple, the one who was reclining on Jesus' chest, Jesus' most intimate friend, is the one author in the New Testament that uses this word more than any other author. Interestingly as well, the word here that he uses, agape, was hardly ever seen in all of Greek literature until the New Testament. And New Testament writers grabbed hold of this word and they infused it with meaning. And the meaning is this. It is unconditional, unmerited favor and desire to bless, to delight in the other. No matter what that other may give in return. It is initiating, it is outgoing, it is for the good of the other, not for the good of self. That's love. Jesus said in John 3 verse 35, the father loves the son. And how does he love the son? He gives all things into his hands. Love gives and love gives and love gives and love gives. No matter what is going to be received in return. I want you to think for a moment. Uh, You parents recall when uh, your children first came home from the hospital. Brand new baby. Bring that baby into your home. And what does the baby bring to the family? Nothing. They don't bring anything, right? Naked they came into the world and then you have to clothe them. You have to house them. You have to feed them. You have to buy diapers, change diapers. In other words, they bring exhaustion and expense, right? That's what the baby brings to the family, right? So sometimes dads get up, but mostly mom is getting up all hours of the night to feed and to clothe and to comfort. You know, why is the baby crying and keeping us all awake? We have no idea, but he won't stop crying unless he's held. And so you rock and you serve and you sacrifice and you give and you give and you give. What does the baby get back? Nothing. Okay, college kids, just be ready. They give nothing back. They don't give anything back. You wait after you're serving and sacrificing and and giving. You're hoping and praying for that first smile that comes back, some affirmation. But parents, you know that the first smile is not really a smile. It's caused by what? Gas, right? In case you didn't hear, it's gas. It's not a smile. It's just gas. So what do babies bring to the family? They bring gas. They don't bring anything else, right? But when you first hold that baby, what do you feel as a parent? Unconditional love that you cannot hold back. You can't hold it back. It just comes forth from you in a way that you've never experienced before. You love. Men and women, that is how God feels toward you. God loves you. Not because you are worthy, not because you deserve it, but because God is love. It's a reflection of who he is. It's a reflection of his character. So, when God created, he created out of love. He didn't create to get inferior beings who could serve him and give something back to him. God created out of love. He created because he wanted to share. And aren't the best moments in our life shared moments? Right? Seeing a sunset is great, but sharing a sunset is much better. Why, why, do we, why do we post pictures of experiences that we've had and then we count the likes, right? Because we want to know that somebody shared this moment with us, even if it's a meal that we had by ourselves. Look what I had to eat. What? Share in this moment with me, right? Whether it's a sunset or a sandwich, I want people to enjoy it with me. God created because God is love and love 
gives and gives and gives. Love shares. God created out of love. God redeemed out of love. Redemption is an act of love. Again, quoting from John, he said, By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only son, his, that is his unique son, the one and only, into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and that he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. What is love? Love is that God goes first. God didn't wait for us to figure things out and get our act together and come chasing after him. Love is the fact that God, as a great father, initiates with us. God comes after us. That's how we know what love is. Or as Paul said in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know, as, as Tim described in his own life, as he was running from his father and his mother, and he was running away from God, and he was in rebellion against God. His father came after him. Jesus would tell his disciples, do you want to be sons of the Most High? Do you want to be like God? Do you want to reflect the image of the family? Then do this. Love your enemies. Not just your friends. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Those who take from you, give more. Because that's what God is like. He causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. Jesus hanging on the cross looks down and he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. They're taking and they're taking and they're taking. And the love of God is demonstrated in this. He pours it out on his enemies. That's amazing love. Worthy of being the first verse you ever memorized, John three sixteen. For God so loved, that is, God loved in such a way that he gave, and he gave what was most valuable to him. He gave his unique son, his only son, so that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have life that lasts forever in the presence of God. That's the love of God. God our Father is a loving, heavenly Father. God is also a sacrificing son. Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, Jesus speaking, says, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Imagine that. The, the, the second member of the Trinity, the eternally existent Son of God, took on human flesh so that he could suffer and die. So that he could serve his creatures. Now, there is no other concept of God anywhere in the world that the God serves the creature. No, the God creates in order to have servants for him, but in Christianity, the Son of God came for the very purpose so that he might sacrifice himself and die on our behalf, that is love. The father is love, the son is love. The son demonstrates his love by sacrificing for us so that we, in fact, can have life. It says in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, he, that is Jesus, is the radiance of his glory. He is the exact representation of his nature that is, whatever the Father loves, the Son loves. And whatever the Father does, the Son does. Because the Father and the Son are one. And the Son is the radiance of the Father. I don't know if you guys noticed, but this spring was pretty cold and wet and dreary. It was an interesting spring. Yesterday was glorious. It was awesome. I don't know about you, but I went outside and I just looked up at the sun. Hadn't seen it in so long and I just enjoyed the heat of the sun. I enjoyed seeing its rays come down. I was basking in the, the warmth of the sun and enjoying it. As I think up about the sun and I look up, I enjoy its light coming down. I enjoy the heat that's warming the earth and warming me. I'm reminded that there is a source. The source is that golden orb glowing in the sky. 
illuminating and bringing life. Writer of the Hebrews says that's an image that is a picture of the Trinity. The source is the Father and his radiance is the Son. And one does not exist without the other. God the Father is always sending. He is sending light and he is sending warmth and he is sending life. And that life is his Son, Jesus. Read with me chapter 14. John's Gospel. Verse 31. Jesus said, So that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly what the Father commanded me. Why did Jesus obey the Father even suffering to the point of death, the death on a cross? Because he loved the Father. The Father loves us and so the Son loves us. John chapter 17, verse 26. And Jesus, again, speaking with his father, he said, I've made your name known to them and I will continue to make it known. Why? So that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus said, what I want is I want you to experience what I've experienced from the father because the father loves you exactly as he loves me. And so I want you to relate to God the father as I relate to God the father. And so when you pray, I want you to pray like this, Abba, Father, Daddy. I want you to come into the very presence of God the way that I come into the presence of my Heavenly Father because he is your Heavenly Father. And I want you to enjoy the same relationship because he loves you just like he loves me. And that's what I want you to experience and that's what I want you to live with. How does he do that? By reconciling us back into relationship with his Father so that his Father becomes our Father and we experience the love of God. John chapter 1 verse 12 says, But as many as received him, that is Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who simply believe in his name. Okay. Those who received him became the, received the right to actually become incorporated into the family of God. Because what God is doing is he is bringing into his family more brothers and sisters for his son Jesus Christ. So that we could relate to one another as a family and we could relate to God as Father and to Jesus Christ as our brother, our Savior in the family of God. And what the significance of that is for us is that we were made to love. Men and women, we were made to love. We were born to love. We were born to receive love and we were born to give love. And you may hear that and go, ah, that doesn't make me feel really all that comfortable because I'm, I'm just not a touchy-feely kind of person. I'm, I'm really more of an introvert. Actually, I'm, you know, I'm sitting in the overflow because I kind of want to sneak out quickly. I'm, you know, no offense, overflow people, you probably just got here late. But I'm just saying, right? <laughs> well, that's not me. Well, maybe I'm not that extreme, but I, I don't really relate to that language of love. God made you to love. He made you to receive it. He made you to give it. He made you to be a great lover of God and others. When Jesus was asked, what's the meaning of life? He said what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then, love your neighbor as yourself. So why do we, why do we resist? Well, because if we give in to that and we love, we become very vulnerable. So you might give love and that love might not be reciprocated. And that's frightening. That's how Adam and Eve felt right after they sinned. They said, we better cover up. Very vulnerable. Or if I bring somebody in and I really genuinely love them, then 
they will get in the way of my agenda, my plans. Because I'll have to incorporate them in somehow and I want to kind of get where I want to go. What is that? That is it's our flesh. Our flesh says, I need to think about me. If I want to be happy, I need to be th- think about me. But I want you to think back. When have you been most happy in your life? When you're thinking about yourself or you're thinking about others? When we are actually able to have those moments when we stop thinking about ourselves and we start thinking about others, those are the most wonderful and blessed moments in our life because that is love. And that's what God designed us for. It's what he made us for, to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love others as we love ourselves, to enter into that love that is shared between Father, Son, and Spirit. So God is a loving Father. God is a sacrificing Son. And God is a serving spirit. The Father loves, the Son loves, and the Spirit loves. And they all love the same thing, and they love you. And they love me. And love is outward-looking, it's not inward-looking. This is the very nature of God. God looks outward, and he looks for opportunities to give and to serve and to sacrifice. What a very different concept of God. You see that especially in the work of the Spirit, who is not grasping for acclaim but is serving the other members of the triune family. He is exalting the Son so the Son can exalt the Father. Read with me in chapter 16, verse 13. Jesus says, But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you unto all truth, for he will speak not on his own initiative, but whatever he hears he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He he will glorify me, For he will take what is mine and he will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he takes of mine and he discloses it to you. Because we share everything, Jesus said. What the Father has is mine and what I have is the Father's. And so the Spirit takes what is ours and he shares it with you. And he doesn't exalt himself. He invites you into that relationship. You see it in creation, we see it in redemption. Think about creation for a moment. God the Father initiates because he loves. And so he breathes out and on his breath or his spirit is carried his word, which is the Son. And so Son and Spirit and Father work together to create. Why? Because God wants to share. He wants to share his beauty, his majesty, his glory. He wants to share his love. It's true in redemption. I want you to notice... Each member of the triune family in these verses. He, that is the Father, saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Spirit. Whom, that is the Spirit, the Father, he poured out richly upon us through who? The Son, Jesus. Okay? Father, Son, Spirit, working together to create, working together to recreate and to redeem, drawing us into the relationship that is experienced within the Godhead. So I want you to think for a moment with me about salvation itself. What is salvation? Normally when we think of salvation, we think uh, uh, escape hell and get heaven, right? That's salvation. Or we think stop sinning, right? Manage sin, Uh, Dallas Willard calls it the gospel of sin management, right? Stop disobeying the rules and start obeying the rules. That's salvation. Or we think salvation from poor health and poverty into health and wealth. That's salvation, right? 
Well, none of those things are bad. Getting out of hell and into heaven, that's a great thing. And not sinning and obeying, that's a good thing, right? And not being sick or poor, those are good things. I'd rather be healthy and wealthy. Those are all good things, but those are, are really a, a shadow of what salvation is. Salvation is being brought into the relationships experienced within the Trinity itself. Read with me John chapter 17 and verse 3. Jesus says this, This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Notice that John doesn't really talk about eternal life in terms of duration. We think time. Eternal life is a quality of existence. It's existence in which you experience the love of God that's shared between Father, Son, and Spirit. Turn to chapter 17 and verse 22. Jesus, again, speaking with his Father, he says, The glory, Father, which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one. I and them and you and me that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and have loved them just as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, Although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Isn't that beautiful? Salvation is experiencing the love that the Father has for the Son and the Son has for the Father and the Father has for the Spirit and the Spirit has for the Father and the Spirit has for the Son. It's entering into the eternal love of God that has always existed within the Godhead and is greater far than anything you can ever imagine. The unconditional, unmerited favor of God poured out towards you constantly. That's the love of God. That is what salvation is. Apostle Paul described it like this. Galatians chapter 4, verse 6. He said, Because you are sons... God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. God has sent forth, the Father has sent forth the spirit, the spirit that ministers the presence of his son, so that his son comes into your heart and his son cries out, Abba, Father, through you, because that's how the son addresses the father, Daddy, Daddy. Now you can equally address the father in the same way because the spirit of God dwells in you. That is salvation. Invited into that experience. Of God. Now, recently I was uh, pointed to a book on the Trinity by a friend of mine. Brian White pointed me to this. Honestly, best book on the Trinity I've ever read. More bluntly, the only book on the Trinity I've ever enjoyed reading. Okay? It's called Delighting in the Trinity. I, I strongly encourage you uh, to grab this book and read it. It's a real short book, but it's so worshipful. In the book, he said this Michael Reeves he said, The Father, Son, and Spirit love and enjoy each other. And created in their image, we were made to love and enjoy them. Blindly and foolishly, though, we have all turned to love and enjoy other things. Things that in reality are completely unable to satisfy. But the Spirit's first work is to set our desires in order. To open our eyes and give us the Father's own relish for the Son and the Son's own enjoyment of the Father. That's what God has for us. Now, if I could ask the men to go back and get communion prepared for us. We're going to celebrate communion at the end. But here's the problem, okay, with all that I've said. 
For many of you, you think of father, and it does not naturally stir wonderful connotations. Or you think of father and mother, you think of the authority that you grew up under. And when you begin to think of God in those terms, it doesn't warm your heart. Or you think about being brought into another family and you don't really enjoy your own family. You don't really enjoy your own siblings. So thinking about spending eternity with brothers and sisters such as you have, you go, I don't know about that. Right? Because our, our whole concept of, of God and who he is and family and fellowship is often influenced and even jaded by our own experience in life. And so what we need from God is we need God to reform and transform how we think about him so that we can worship him as he actually is because then we will see ourselves as he sees us. See the significance? Then we'll see ourselves as he sees us. The most important thing about a man, Tozer said, is what he thinks of God, what he conceives God to be like. C.S. Lewis said, you know, there's something even more important and that is what does God think about you? But you can't know what God thinks about you unless you are thinking rightly about God and who he is. And men and women, this is what God thinks about you. You are beloved children. What is God thinking about you right now in this very moment? God is loving you. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. That's the love of God. I will tell you without question, the two most powerful moments in my life were those moments where I first held my son and I first held my daughter. The overwhelming power of the emotion of that moment I cannot put into words. But I didn't say to myself, gosh, I hope I can figure out how to love this baby. (laughs) Never crossed my mind. I just loved. I couldn't help but love. And my love toward my children is just this, this tiny, pale shadow of how God feels toward you. And so as we celebrate communion, I want you just to meditate and enjoy one thing. The deep, deep love of God toward you. How deeply must God have loved you that he would give his son for you? How deeply must God have loved you that he would sacrifice what was most dear to him so that you would experience his love? Let's take a few moments and just meditate upon that truth and then we'll share in the body and the blood of Jesus together. Bread represents the body of Christ. How deeply must Jesus have loved us that he would allow his body to be broken for us? Let's take the bread together. cup represents the blood of Jesus Christ. How deeply must Jesus have loved us that he would allow his blood to be spilled, that he'd go through suffering of a cross death so that we could be reconciled in a relationship with God. Let's take the cup together. Father, we thank you for your deep, deep love, which is simply the, the overflow, the very essence of your personality. You love because you are love, and we thank you, Father, that you have shared that love with us through your son, Jesus. We pray, Father, that that would not remain uh, knowledge that is stored away in our minds simply, but it would be uh, an experience that we have of you, celebrating, enjoying as your children your love, and then sharing that love as the overflow of hearts that are full, abundance of our lives with you, flowing over into love for others. 
Father, we thank you. Thank you for your love for us. 